This is episode 122 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Bethany McLean on Enron and Business Reporting. This episode is part of our series about journalism and journalists. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm so honored to welcome one of my heroes uh, to the show today. Bethany McLean is with me, and she's the author of a Fortune article, which was called, Is Enron Overpriced? Uh, And I'll introduce her first. She was born in Minnesota and got a BA in English and Mathematics from Williams College. She started her career as an investment banking analyst for Goldman Sachs and then joined Vanity Fair as a contributing editor in 2008. She also wrote for Slate's Moneybox column and the Bulldog column in Fortune. And then she wrote this article that we're going to talk about today and then co-authored the book, The Smartest Guys in the Room, uh, which detailed the corrupt business practices of Enron officials. And you may be aware that book was then made into an Academy Award nominated documentary, which is excellent, by the way. She also wrote a book on the 2008 financial crisis titled All the Devils Are Here And I didn't know about this, but uh, in September 2015, she also published A Shaky Ground, The Strange Saga of the U.S. Mortgage Giants, which I'll have to check out. It's about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So, Bethany, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Bethany, I have to tell you that that article made such an impression on me. I can remember actually where I was sitting when somehow I came across that article and it's such an interesting article, you know, it's kind of a mild title, is Enron Overpriced. But the thing that got me, well, your main point during the article was just that it was really hard to understand the financials of Enron because they're divisions and companies buried inside divisions and companies. So it's really hard to untangle their financials. But at some point in the article, you made an observation that for a company that had that much revenue and that much income, their cash flow was really low. And in fact, my recollection of reading it was that their cash flow was zero, which when I reread it recently, that's not quite what you said, but you did make this observation. And I remember it just raised the hairs on the back of my neck. As a finance person, it was like, "Uh uh-oh. So tell me how that article came about. So it came about um, because I had made an effort to develop relationships with short sellers. And the reason why I did that is because I became pretty conscious early in my career as, as a journalist that the bias in the business world is toward the positive, right? Everybody wants to make money. Everybody wants to see stocks go up until they don't. And the voices of caution or of skepticism are outside the mainstream and often um, quiet. 
And this, this idea, which was becoming popular even back then, that information was freely accessible to all was, was clearly wrong to me because certain kinds of information were freely accessible to all. And there was, in fact, too much of it. But other kinds of information traveled in very small private private circles. So I started trying to get access to those small private circles because I felt, well, as a writer at Fortune, people are not going to short a stock because I tell them there might be something wrong here, but they might run out and buy a stock because they read something positive in Fortune. Mm-hmm. And if I, I have a responsibility to try to be as right as, as possible. And so I need to understand the the skeptical side of the argument before before I publish something. So with that, with that as a backdrop, I had gotten to know a guy named Jim Chanos, who is still a well-respected short seller and around today. And he, uh, someone who worked for him called me in the fall of 2000, I guess, and said, why don't you take a closer look at Enron and you tell us if you can figure out how they make money. <laughs> I was, <laughs> and I was only at that time, what was it, a few years out of a um, short-lived career in investment banking. So I, I actually knew how to go through a 10K and do some spreadsheets and, and look at the numbers. I wasn't scared of balance sheets and cash flow statements and income statements. So, mm-hmm. uh, so it wasn't, that, what, that wasn't a stretch. At this, at, at that point, um, it might be now. No, I'm, I'm joking, but but at, but at that point, it was something I was I was very comfortable with, and and yeah, it stood it stood out to me because one of the red flags I'd learned early on was uh, a huge discrepancy between earnings and cash flow. It doesn't mean there's a problem, but if there is a big gap, particularly in what is supposed to be a well-established business, it might give, it should give you pause. Mm-hmm. Yes, like I say, it really had a. A profound impact on me. And of course, things really unraveled fast after that. But let's go back a little bit. You, there's a really interesting interview with you when you went back to Williams College and you talk during your speech there about perseverance and how that helped you get a degree in math, which was tough, and then also survive those three years at Goldman Sachs. How do you think your mathematical knowledge and your persistence helped you break that story? That's an interesting question. So I think in a couple of ways, as you noted in that interview, um, I I started Williams thinking that I was great at math. And somewhere in my sophomore or junior year, I hit a black wall. Math math is actually more highly creative and highly intuitive at a a certain level. And either you have the brain that that can see it or or you don't. And if you don't see it, there almost isn't a way to start. It's almost like doing a great piece of art. If you don't have the vision, you almost just just can't. And so for me, math went from being very easy for me to being very hard and almost the, the blink of an eye. But I, I was stubborn and I didn't want to give up on, on being a math major, but I, I struggled through it. I was proud of my B's that I got in math. Mm-hmm. And I still feel looking back that I learned more from struggling through that than I did from being innately good at things because I learned that you can figure things out if you work really hard at them. And that just because something doesn't come naturally, it doesn't mean you're not good at it. And in fact, or you can't do it. And that just because you're, you're not great at something doesn't mean that it's not a valuable skill to try to acquire anyway. I actually gave another talk at Williams once about how math made me a better journalist. And I think it, it did in, in a couple of ways because it taught me perseverance and perseverance is a really important skill as a journalist. You get told no a lot. A lot of people hang up on you. Stories hit dead ends and you have to try mm. to figure out where you're, where you're going to go from there. But also because I'm, I'm not innately confrontational. I grew up in Minnesota and there's some truth to the notion of, of Minnesota nice. <laughs> the only thing that makes me able to be confrontational is when the logic doesn't make sense. Mm. Being a math major 
makes me think, does A lead to B to C to D? And when it doesn't, when there are gaps in the logic, that's where I can dig in and even be be quite confrontational in order to figure out why why the dots are connecting. And that's 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 the mechanism for me is is through that that lens of of logic. And I think I learned that through doing math proofs because in the end of uh, a math proof is really a, a very pure expression of logic. Did Enron try and suppress that story or did you get pushback from some of the analysts? Um, Enron did, but it was the last golden age of journalism. And I had a great deal of support at Fortune in a way that at the time I didn't appreciate. But looking back on now, I I really do. Mm -hmm. Ken Lay, who was then the chairman of Enron, even called the managing editor of Fortune trying to get the story killed. And I didn't even hear about that call until after until after Enron's bankruptcy. My editors at the magazine, after um, Enron executives flew up to meet with us and talk us out of doing the story, my editors oh, wow. were, said, make the story tougher. They didn't, they didn't answer any of your questions. So I really got, um, I really got a lot of support from, from the magazine. And I thought about that in retrospect and hoped that if I hadn't gotten support, that I would have persevered with the story anyway. But I don't, to be perfectly honest, I don't I don't know the answer to that, Mm -hmm. but I didn't, I took that for granted at the time. I think that level of institutional support is uh, much rarer today than it was back then. Wow. That's an interesting commentary. How much did the story evolve from your original draft? You know, what's funny is that it really didn't. Mm. My original take the idea I brought to the magazine was was skeptical, um, was exactly that. How does Enron make its money? And it turned out that all the people who were supposed to be able to answer that question couldn't answer it, and and that the company itself didn't provide very, very good answers to that. So it really didn't change very much. The idea was was much as the story ended up being, which which is not always the case, Um, but it it was in in this particular case. That kind of explains the tone of the article, actually, because it's, you know, it's not a short article, but it's not particularly long, but it doesn't have this da-da-da-da, you know, here's the bombshell type type tone to it at all. It's just sort of, well, I talked to this analyst and yeah, he couldn't really figure it out. And then this weird thing over here, you know, it has this kind of, and yet the, the thing that it disclosed is so incredibly profound. Well, thank you. I, I've always thought that that Story should have won awards for the meekest headline in history. Because I know, <laughs> right? I know. But, but it honestly is that's a part. Part of that is an ex- expression of where I was and where the world was at that time. And what I sure. mean, I was still pretty naive. I was 30, 31. The idea that a big company at that point, I think by revenues, even though that was sort of an iffy measure, but by revenues, Enron was the seventh biggest company in America. I think the idea that a company that big building a gleaming new skyscraper in Houston, Texas could be a house of cards was, I, I, it, it just, it was beyond the way I thought it was, it was shocking to me. And it was shocking to most of us at, at that time, because the decade that preceded that had been an unprecedented run in equities when in the dot-com collapse was just starting. That would make the dot-com, the first dot-com collapse that would make cynics of us all, or at least skeptics of us all, or many of us was just starting. And we, we weren't accustomed to thinking that way. And 
to me, the idea that the accountants and the lawyers and the board of directors could be signing off on behavior that in retrospect would just seem so terribly wrong. I, I never would have guessed it. I thought the gatekeepers did their job. So the story has a tone of befuddlement, not because I was deliberately trying to be coy, but rather because I I, mm-hmm. I, I was befuddled. If you had told me at that time that in six months Enron was going to be bankrupt I, and I was going to find myself in the middle of you know one of the biggest scandals corporate America had or would see, I would have said, no, no, no. No, no, no. I so I've always sort of pushed back on the notion that I broke that story because I really didn't. I raised questions, but to me, breaking a story means really explaining what's what's happening. And nobody did that with Enron until long after the fact. Mm. Yeah, I can see what you mean. But to me, what partly what I loved about that article and about your story was here here a journalist sits down diligently to figure something out and it just doesn't add up. And you know, it's just pretty rare, I, I think, for us to encounter people who are willing to honestly say, hey, I don't get it, you know, because there's so much sort of groupthink and emperor's new clothes. And so that was one of the reasons that, that I really loved that article was, wow, this this thinking person just put her brain on something and and it didn't add up. And she's pointing that out. How brave. <laughs> always perhaps to a fault push back against groupthink because once I see it, I'm inclined to think that it's not accurate. And sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. (laughs) You you nailed it this time for sure. So yeah, Enron went bankrupt uh, super fast after that. In fact, everything just unraveled really fast. Can you explain to the listeners what happened? So I I don't think my story in any way caused the bankruptcy. I think it picked up on a skepticism about Enron that was growing. Um, People were wondering how some of Enron's much-hyped businesses could be continuing to grow and prosper when the entire dot-com universe was melting down and people were increasingly questioning how the company made its money. Um, Jeff Skilling, the company's CEO, abruptly quit in August of 2001, and that raised a lot more questions. Um, as the stock price continued to slide, the Wall Street Journal did a couple of stories detailing these partnerships that Andy Fastow, the company's CFO, was running. Enron had to restate its um, financials. They fired Fastow, and there was basically just a meltdown in the confidence that was propping up the company. And the company had devised all of these very complicated financial structures that hinged on the price of its stock. So the old adage that a stock is not a company was could not have been less true in the case mm-hmm. in the Enron. Enron literally was its stock price. And as the stock began to fall, these structures began to unwind. And so and, and so the company ended up declaring bankruptcy. And it immediately was just an enormous scandal. And I think part of the reason that it was one of the few business scandals that really leapt off the business page and became part of the cultural consciousness was because so many people, so many employees at the company had their entire net worth caught up in, in, in the company. And a lot of us were, were doing that back then. And the idea that this could all vaporize and that you could be left with nothing and that you couldn't trust the company you were working for, it was just, it, it, it was shocking. Yeah, it feels a little personal to me too. I was in I still am in California during that time. And so I was really astonished at the disclosures that were made about the blackouts in California and how Enron was basically turning off the power to the state and how that led into the eventual recall of Gray Davis and really the eventual election of Schwarzenegger. So I really followed these stories. And I want to mention 
the book that you wrote, The Smartest Guys in the Room, which is a great book, and then was made into a, a really good movie, also Smartest Guys in the Room, where all of this is disclosed. And I wanted to ask if you were involved in the script writing for the movie. I really wasn't. Alex Gibney, who made that movie and has gone went on to win the Oscar for Taxi to the Dark Side and do a lot of other really well-known work, is really a fantastic movie maker. And he, he, he did it himself and uncovered some things that we hadn't uncovered. He's a really great journalist as well as a really great documentary filmmaker. So, so no. But back to your point about the, the California energy crisis, I I've been thinking about this recently because so much of what Enron did in that crisis was basically based on the idea that if it makes money, then it's good, which is a very simple and appealing morality that I think dictates too much of what happens in corporate America. And you could see that again with the, this company called Valiant, which, which collapsed in the spring of, I guess, 2016. And they were raising prices on drugs to astronomical levels in order to extract profits. And their basic argument was, if it makes money, then it's good. And it's a, you can see why the morality is so appealing to people who want to think um, simplistically, but it is, it is such a dangerous morality. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point. Thanks for making that, Bethany. And I think one of the things that you've talked about during, you know, your public life is these ideas about ethics. And I do really worry that the ethics in the United States has shifted a lot in my lifetime and that it's not done us a lot of favors. Yeah, you see that now with companies taking um, PPP money that is needed to bail out small businesses. And there's just been a free-for-all grab with companies that don't really need it, trying to get their hands on it and take it away from the companies who, who really do need it. And some companies have given it back, but only when they've been called out publicly. <laughs> right. I guess that speaks to one thing, which is the power of journalism. And thank heavens enough of us are still around to, to shine a light on that. But it also is in this time of total and complete crisis to watch this happening has been a little bit disheartening. I would have, I, I would have hoped companies who didn't, that didn't need the money would have, would have been better. I'm doing a series of podcasts about journalism and journalists, and I wanted to ask you how much you thought your investigative reporting revealed the depth of the fraud that was going on at Enron. So my first story really didn't. It was so much more of a people don't get this than, than anything else. I'm proud of that story in, in the sense that particularly at that time in my career, it took some bravery and willing to be willingness to be different to to, to raise those questions, but I'm equally not not proud of the avenues, I, I, the difficult avenues I, I didn't pursue. And um, mm. but I think the book offers a much more complete explanation of what it is that happened. And my co-author Peter Alkind, who was a more experienced investigative journalist and who I learned a lot from, and I really dug into it in the book. So in the end, in a weird sort of way, I almost view the book as vindication for the attention I got for the story. If that makes oh, sense. Oh sure. Oh yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. I understand. Yeah, the book is really excellent. Thank you. And so did you continue to write as the investigations and the trial was unfolding and all of that? I, I really didn't continue to write as Enron fell apart. And part of that is one of the downsides of magazine journalism. There's very much, uh, at least before the online world existed, there was very much a hit me with your best shot attitude, meaning you did a big story. And, and that was that. And then you didn't 
come back and keep covering it. That, that that's that's never been what a magazine has has been about, and sometimes to to a fault. Now that everybody has an online presence as well, that's changed a little bit. There's more of an avenue available to continue to cover something. But so I, I really didn't. After that first story, I let it go up until the company's the company's bankruptcy, um, and then we published the book in the fall of two thousand and three. After you left Fortune, you went to Vanity Fair, and you mentioned in the Williams interviews because you thought you were going to write longer pieces there. But then the financial crisis hit, and so can you talk about that phase of your career? Yeah, so so Vanity Fair was and and still is sort of the thing you aspire to in journalism, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know what your analogy would be if you're a basketball player and you want to play in the NBA one day. That's that's sort of what Vanity Fair was. And so when Graydon Carter um, came calling, I I wanted to try it, and it's it's funny because I I definitely had a sense of myself as a good investigator and reporter, but not necessarily a great writer. And I actually thought I'd go to Vanity Fair and then say, no, thanks. <laughs> First mm. couple of stories. Um, and it, and it ended up working out and I got to discover sort of a new, a new phase of, of my existence because I've gotten to do some stories there that have not been very heavily financial. Um, and that's been fun from a, from a creative standpoint, but yes, right after I got there, which I think is a testimony to this a very strange intuitive quality that Graydon Carter has, which is just the ability to somehow feel what's coming before it's happening. So he hired me in the spring of 2008, which was right before the financial crisis erupted. So I ended up um, getting to do some coverage of that in Vanity Fair and then writing a book with my old editor at Fortune, um, Jonah Sarah, um, about the financial crisis called All the Devils Are Here. Yeah, and then I noticed also when I introduce you from the Wikipedia information, you also have another book that I didn't even know about with the shaky ground book. I'll have to check that out. I've always been very perplexed by Freddie and Fannie Mac. So I think you will help me. I'm, I'm thrilled. There's a very, very, very small group of people who are interested in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, but they're, they're very passionate. So would welcome you to the club. <laughs> right. We're looking at another economic crisis now during the pandemic. And are you writing about any any of the current events? I am. I'm starting to. I'm I'm thinking about it. Um, so I'm still figuring out exactly what I'm going to do. I did one short piece for Vanity Fair on private equity firms getting a piece of of the um, disaster relief money, and we'll probably do do more. I'm really fascinated by hospital supply chains, among other things. Mm. So <laughs> we're such nerds. <laughs> Why do you like writing about business? I think. I act somewhat accidentally began a career in writing about business. I was never a kid with a real much of a plan. And if I had any plan, it was probably to get my PhD in math. And after my after I struggled with my math major, I was lucky enough to spend a summer at Williams. Williams had this great program called SMALL, which was the only independent math research program for undergrads at the time. And I was lucky enough to spend a summer working in it. And I absolutely hated it. And oh, I oops. Grad school was really probably not for me. So that's how I ended up at Goldman. And it was really during my third year as an analyst at Goldman when I when I thought, well, I was an English major as well. I, I want to write. I've always wanted to be a journalist. And the one skill I can debatably bring to this is that now I've got this grounding in understanding how, how business works. So maybe I'll be able to get a job at some kind of business-oriented publication. And so it really was a result of my experience um, 
probably go, going back to my math major rather than any kind of, oh, business is what is what I'm interested in. And it just, it turned out to be, I just think people ask me all the time, don't you want to go on and write about something more interesting than business? And I always say, oh "Oh my God, you can't make up these characters. I mean, from Gilling to Aubrey McClendon, to Mike Pearson, the CEO of Valiant, to the characters in the financial crisis, to other people across the oil and gas landscape, to Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos. And it just mm-hmm. proves the um, the old adage that truth is stranger than fiction time and time again. So on the outside, people tend to think of business as this colorless, rational world. And oh, on it is full of color and passion and emotion and everybody thinks they're making rational decisions and they're not. It's totally driven by emotion and fear and hopes and dreams. It's Shakespearean. And so I just think it doesn't, it doesn't get any more interesting than this. I mean, if you had, if you had said in the years before the financial crisis that some of the country's biggest investment banks were going to go bankrupt or be on the brink of bankruptcy, people would have said, no, 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 that can't happen. But but it did. And, and we see that that idea play out time and time again. So I, I just think it's fascinating. So for my last question, thinking about journalism today, especially during this pandemic and uh, with the decline in the media industry before, what are your observations? So I, I think there are some publications that are are going to rise out of this and succeed really well. The New York Times in particular, I think has found a business model that that looks like it's going to work. I think the journal is doing decently, but I think overall, we're obviously still struggling. There's been a huge, huge loss in local newsrooms. I don't remember the numbers, but I think employment is down 40% in, in, in local newsrooms. And I, I worry about that as then the voice of the New York Times becomes a monolithic voice for the whole country. And it, and it really is. Not. And I, I feel like we are seeing some of the downsides of that during, during this pandemic and that much of the coverage is from a New York perspective. And it is not, there's not as much coverage from the perspective of, of local communities. And everyone is feeling the crisis and the response to the crisis um, in, in different ways. And places are experiencing it very differently than, than New York is. And I think some of that diversity of perspective would be helped if we still had strong local news and we, we don't. And so I, I, I worry about that. Um, I worry too that, that some of the taking on a project like Enron or or other stories is you, you may not succeed, right? It may not be a big deal. You may put a lot of time into it and nobody may care and nothing, nothing may happen. Mm-hmm. And as more and more of us are freelancers, you don't have the option of not succeeding because if you don't succeed, your piece doesn't get published and you don't get paid. And I think that that dictates coverage in profound ways and um, in, in ways that aren't always good. That said, there's no lack of passion for content and no lack of young people who care a lot and want to do really good work. I just tweeted today um, a piece done by a kid at the Latin School in Chicago who wrote a piece about Latin taking some of the PPP money. And Latin is one of the wealthiest schools in Chicago where the, fam- where the families of billionaires go. It, it was inexcusable. Oh, wow. Without this kid writing this piece, there probably would have been no exposure. And as it was, Latin gave the money back. And I thought journalism is alive and well. It's just going to take a different. It's going to take a different form in the future, and we don't know what that's going to be. And maybe this era of ad-supported journalism is done. But 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 something will emerge. It it has to. There's certainly a big thirst for information. 
Yeah, there's no less of a thirst for information than there ever was. It may just be in different forms and it may be funded in a different way. And I think we're all still trying to figure out what that is, but where there's that kind of crisis, there's also opportunity. And I think one really good thing um, that has come out of everything over the last decade or so is that to be a journalist, you used to once have to be a journalist, right? In other words, if you didn't work at a big publication, you didn't get published and your voice didn't get heard. Mm -hmm. And now there are all these options, all these avenues for a plethora of voices to, to be heard. And that that's good. That's good. So I, I, I like to believe that even though it's hard, it's really hard to see how it all shakes out and there's a lot to worry about, that there is something really positive that will emerge from this. Before I let you go, is there anything that you'd like to share with the listeners about how they could follow your work or anything you'd like them to know? Well, let's see. I'm not I'm not particularly good about the, I still have a little bit of I don't know old school reticence about posting pieces that I've done. I try to do it on Twitter. I'm not always perfect about it. Um, um, so that's, that's probably the, the best place to, to, to find my work if, if you're interested in and hopefully I'll have some some big things out in the near future. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll link to your Twitter handle on the show notes. Thank you very much, Bethany, for your time. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Bye. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. During the pandemic, we'll be changing our format in honor of those who are quarantined or working on the front lines. We'll put out shorter shows on a daily or near daily basis early in the morning to start your day on a positive and interesting note. We'll be considering work-related issues relevant while COVID-19 is impacting the world. If you have a question or a comment or a message for our listeners, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website, discreetguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T, where you can also find other resources about working better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces, our work lives, and our lives in general. And thanks for listening. We look forward to returning to our old format when the world has returned to a more normal state. In the meantime, please hang in there, stay safe, and know that I care about you. <laughs>